Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I am your host, Michael Lilienthal, and this is my guest, Ethan Bartlett. Hello, gentle listener. I'm Ethan Bartlett. And he's with me in a room that has scotch in it, but Ethan hasn't seen the scotch. I haven't seen the scotch. I was going to ask if it did have scotch, because I haven't seen the scotch. No, you haven't. It's a mystery. (laughs) We're excited and waiting for the scotch. Give me the scotch. Give me the scotch Okay, I'll give you the scotch. Give me the scotch. But first, let's talk about the rules. Okay. So we're going to talk about a book. Yes. And that book is... Raise High the Roof Being Carpenters and Seymour in Introduction by J.D. Salinger. We'll talk about that. But we are not going to talk about the scotch. Not once the scotch is poured. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink. No scotch talk. Right. What happens if we do talk about the scotch, Michael? Then we suffer the punishment. What is the punishment? <laughs> oh, don't you wish you knew? I do wish I knew. <laughs> You'll because find Because the out. punishment last month literally almost killed both of us. Yeah, it's true. That's true. But we don't have Josiah with us. Yeah, Josiah. that's right. Josiah. You butt. You butt. You, you better be listening and have read the book because I gave That's you right. the book. That's right. So. You got it free. For free. The rest of you still should have read it. You better have. In fact, we should pause right now. We should. Let them go read the book. Go read the book. All right. Okay. Hit pause on your tape player. No. Go read the book. Okay. Hit the play button. Okay. We're back. All right. We're back. Now we're going to talk about the book in a moment. First, I'm going to pour the scotch. A couple other rules, though. Yes. Uh, the other rule, we're not allowed to talk about anybody's mother's. Right. Nobody's mothers unless they unless are related to the book and not a joke. In the context of the book and is not in any way a your mom joke. Right. Yes. Exactly. So, no mothers. Uh, also established last month was the fact that I am not allowed to say the word vampire. <laughs> <laughs> is that the actual rule we established? Because I that's, was never That's the clear. way I understood it. <laughs> For me, it was just a trap to just a trap. punish you more. All right. You know, I'm going to take it as a challenge. Okay. okay. So, if I say the word vampire after the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, then I also lose. Good. So, uh, like Calvin Ball, this game is evolving. Uh, but the points don't matter. <laughs> <laughs> you just combine Calvin Ball and whose line is it anyway? Does that mean I win? No. No. Oh. You might You might have already lost. Oh. Okay, fine. <laughs> anyway, I won't right. punish you, though, this time. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. All right. So, uh, are you ready to find out what scotch we're drinking? Absolutely. I have it hidden back here. Oh, behind the couch. The old behind the couch. Ready? It's the same place Santa Claus used to hide his stuff when I was a kid. Ooh. What are you looking at, Ethan? I'm looking at (laughs) Highland Single Malt Scotch Whiskey. Okay, now it says Dalwini? Dalwini. Dalwini. Ding, 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 ding. You win. Um, Highland Single Malt, 15 years old. Yes. Now, uh, kind of like what you did last month, this is a scotch I have had before. I've okay. had it once before. Okay. Um, I will wait to tell you what I think about it until we're done and we rate the scotch. Right. Because maybe my opinion changed anyway. But we'll see. So that's the opposite of what I did last month, where I just straight up told you that I freaking love right. that scotch, but I did freaking love it. So but there look we at are. this! Look at this little it's bottle. It's a beautiful little bottle. It's one of those little. Uh, it's similar to the the Balvini bottle. Yes. Um, where it's sort of a squat little bottle that I could envision easily being like carried around some sort of dock situation. Absolutely. When, like, a sailor was home and just bought a bottle of scotch, or not even home, but on leave, and like. Mm-hmm was wandering around singing ballads on the dock have i created like the most cliche yes scotch related picture you I have could? absolutely okay. i don't Good. think you get more cliche um well it could have we tried it could we could try really hard <laughs> it's super cliche but that's not what this show is about no michael 
Okay, I'm opening the scotch. He's he's just uh, trying to seal. fill the air with noise as he opens the scotch, okay. very very slowly. That's, it's got a really good seal. It on does this have thing. a really good seal. Okay, there you go. And not like the animal kind. Like there's another good right. solid right. cliche joke. Ready for the pop? Yeah. Ooh, nice. That was a nice pop. Nice little squeak beforehand too. At what point does this become a fetish show? Uh, that's up to the listeners. <laughs> that is true. So. That is true. Dear listeners, if this is a fetish show for you, please don't tell us. <laughs> really, we might just stop forever. We we might just. <laughs> All right. So, the scotch has been poured. Ready to begin the episode? Indeed. All right. Slancha. L'chaim. You just... Never mind. I literally almost lost, like, the first moment I could lose. I know. Uh, almost quicker than last month. <laughs> <laughs> How long did it take me last month? I don't Ten minutes. Was it that short? Ten minutes. Oh, I knew it was fast, but Yeah. jeez. That's, oh, that's a record, oh, so. That's also something that I'm not going to say, because I'd lose again. You would. I would. You would lose. <laughs> I'm glad I telepathically transmitted that into your mind. <laughs> yep. Because that doesn't it's count as all breaking the, the rules. <laughs> Telepathic transmission. No, we might have to add that in future. We might. Future episodes. How would we? <laughs> how would we uh, tell enforce them? that? <laughs> yeah, that is a good question. It's a valid question, which we may we may mull. Yes. Um. Yeah. Okay. So now, uh, and we should remind the listeners that uh, based on um the fact that we talk a lot when we talk so much. We are splitting these episodes now. Yes. Um, so this will be part one of Raise High the Root Beams, Carpenters, and See More in Introduction. Mm-hmm. And then we will wait a couple weeks and release part two. And we will be drinking scotch two that weeks entire straight. couple weeks. <laughs> two weeks straight. Yeah. I just lost. You did! <laughs> Holy cats! Eight minutes in! It hasn't even been eight minutes because like the first three the, minutes yeah, of this that was are... Just oh testing. my gosh! Oh, I didn't even catch it. You could have kept going, and I, I wouldn't could, have even oh, known. <laughs> I have always been that way. Like when I when I would play chess when I was younger, I would point out checkmates that like, yep, my yep, opponent yep. didn't notice. Oh, you should listen to Pokemon Rollout. Nick is always, always saying, "Guys, did you remember you can do this?" <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's there's a there's a shameless plug for another show. Yeah, but uh, it's on the same network. But it's on the so same network, so we, we can all, talk we about all it. We all make the same advertising dollars from from all those exactly, shows. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Which, as we've said already tonight, we are in this for the money. For the money. Uh, yes, for sure. that is what we are all about. For sure. Money at green. Okay. Mm. Are you gonna but, like? Do you want to wait to punish me? I will. Okay. I'm going to wait. Okay, this this reminds me of another completely unrelated thing. Um, Alfred Hitchcock, the master of suspense oh, yes. in, in film, uh, he went, I believe it was to a Jesuit school. Um, I, I might have the, the, um, the uh, order wrong, but I believe it was a Jesuit school. And he always said that the way he learned suspense was the fact that at that school, when you did something wrong... You put like the uh, the priest would put a mark in a book, and then they wouldn't punish you. Mm. And then at some point, any of the the priests or uh, probably all priests that worked at that school could see that you had a mark in your book and punish you for the thing that that you had a mark against That's you for. Wicked, right? Um, so I love it. <laughs> so let me get a book here. Uh, I, we already know, Michael. There's only one Let's mark. See. Why are you? I'm taking uh, Luther's works, volume twenty-eight. 
I, I, I stopped myself because I was, I was going to be like, why are you taking Luther's works? And I was like, obviously. Obviously it's Luther's works. Obviously it's yeah. Luther's works. Here's what are you doing? of paper. I'm going to put it in there. This is the worst system. There. All right. That piece of paper means Ethan gets punished. Uh, <laughs> so let's uh let's talk about this book let's we? talk about okay. this book oh There's so what I, was, what I was gonna start to say is that so we're splitting the up the the show, show into in two, two episodes yes so if we were like rational people what we do is talk about raise high the roof beams mm-hmm. carpenters this episode and then talk about seymour and introduction Ninja. next episode I are we going about to that? do that i really don't want to do not that. gonna do that at all no because these two as you mentioned when you brought this book and said this is what we're going to read this month uh they are intimately connected yeah uh even though there's what like three years between them in writing time one's like 56 and one's 59 oh i didn't or something. even i never, um, never even looked um, yeah, because I, I believe they 55 were 55 and 59. Probably so published years. in um, magazines first. Like, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Salinger published a lot in probably The Atlantic and some of those other yeah. sort of mid-century literary magazines. Um, right. So, but yeah. They're, they're connected. But they they're are connected. Very closely connected. And honestly, um, reading through, I had a very clear picture at the end of Raise High the Roof Beam Carpenters that was... I don't want to say completely subverted, but maybe inverted by Seymour in introduction. Oh, interesting. Uh, maybe not completely. Uh, there, sure. But uh, it, it clarified things for me sure. from Raise High the Roof Beam Carpenters. Um, well, do you have, do you have like a place that you want to start this discussion? Because if you don't, I do. I, I have ideas. Uh, just the characters. The, the two characters that are constant between the two works are Seymour... Seymour Glass sure. and Buddy Glass, right. the brother the, the, and the narrator. And the narrator and the writer. Um, okay. If that's where you want to start, kay. I have an even more, like, starty starting okay. place. Okay, give us a starty starting place. And that is literally just continuing my tradition of being on this show, <laughs> the grad student who, like, only reads the the uh, very first paragraph, listens to the rest of the discussion, and then we just might analyzes need to everything. add a new rule that says you can't say first paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> just because I've said it every episode. Every episode. Okay, but I've outdone myself this time, because this oh. here, we are starting at... The dedication. The dedication, which is okay. one of my favorite dedications in yes. all of literature. It's really good. If there is an amateur reader still left in the world, or anybody who just reads and runs, I ask him or her, with untellable affection and gratitude, to split the dedication of this book four ways with my wife and children. <laughs> uh, which inevitably. You know, this will come to no surprise to anyone who has, like, known me ever um, or listened to the show ever. Reminds me of something by Mark Twain. Um, okay. The dedication to, or not, it's not even a dedication, but it's just the front piece to Huckleberry Finn. Yes. Where, um, do you happen to have a copy of that handy? Not, not? in this that's, room. That's okay. It's not worth it. Anyway, but it's, it's essentially, it has led to the death of many literary critics because <laughs> it says, you know, anyone trying, I don't know exactly the order and the wording, but no. it's like anyone trying to find a moral, a moral in this story plot. will be shot. Yeah. Anyone trying to find a plot in it will be hanged. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, two or three other, uh, things like that. And fortunately, like, uh, we won't be shot or hanged because Salinger doesn't quite give it that no, level of no, he doesn't, imprecation. He doesn't threaten us quite. Right. But 
We are not going to do any of what it says in that introduction. No, we're really not. Absolutely not. Well, who are his wife and children? I don't know. That's <laughs> doesn't it what? <laughs> Never mind. No, anyway. but like okay, 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 hold on. Okay, we are to, not to he's asking the reader to do this. Yeah. So how would I be able to do this? I don't know who his wife and children are. I can't get go up to them and not, say Salinger what, dedicates this book to you. Is this your is this your revenge? For, like, me assuming that everyone listening to this show listens on tape recorders? Is that, that what this is? I, I don't know what you mean. I, I think I, you I, I'm, I'm trying to be perfectly <laughs> rational here and say how irrational this dedication is. I mean, it is an irrational dedication. Yeah. That is that is true. Yeah. What I'm Based saying is... Based on the is, fact that I don't know his wife is, are, so I can't go find her. Also, we are not going to just read and run. Right, that's Like, true. we're going to analyze the crap out of this. Yeah, that's true. Um, Not necessarily well, but... But we'll, we'll do but, it. But, uh... Wisely, let us say. Wisely, but sagely, wisely, but wizardly, not well. wizardly. Yes, but wisely, but not too well. Anyway, okay, go ahead. Um, okay, no, uh, and that's that's actually a really good place to start um, because it's addressing the reader and turning right. the reader into an agent of the author, which is kind of a theme of this whole book. Really? What would you call that operation on the part of an author? Stupid and... <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, deliberate. Uh, <laughs> actually, I think I think it has some connections to Salinger's um, Eastern religion tendencies. Okay, which um, is an interesting uh, theme. That... Yeah, and it's it's very very subtle mm-hmm. in here. Yeah, there's there's mention of Taoism, especially in Seymour and Introduction, sure. uh, where Buddy warns the reader, "All right, I'm going to tell you something that you're not going to like, and I'm going to get myself into a lot of trouble here by mentioning this, and I'm not going to find the page." Sure. Uh, but this, I, I think, are this you talking about like philosophy the... of Seymour's has to do with Taoism or something? Taoism, yeah. The uh, uh, you're talking about like the parable. Of the Taoist parable of the there's that too, was... yeah. Oh, that's um, not what you're talking about. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, that and that's that's ancillary, um, but connected, yes. Right. Uh, but he's far more direct in Seymour in introduction where he mentions the Taoism. Well, that's um, that's in Seymour also. The Taoist parable. The Taoist parable. Oh, 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 oh. You're, yeah. Like... Okay, I was thinking about the 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 horse analyzer. At yeah, the that's beginning that's of what I'm talking high. about. No, that's at the beginning of Raised High. No, it's not. Yeah, it is. Uh, are you sure? Yes, I am. Fudge, you're right. Ah, uh, the Taoist tale. I feel like I should lose uh, just for that. Duke move, frankly. Chin. Yeah, you probably should. So, double the punishment, double the fun. Uh, I didn't <laughs> agree to that. I'm just saying it should happen. That sounds but as like we know, an acquiescence. That which should happen so. should. But but like this is actually supporting your point of. Um, how intimately connected these two essentially novellas are right and the fact that they do work together to form a concrete whole even though um they seem on the surface very sort of episodic or or sequential um and you haven't read franny and zoe i have not uh franny and zoe literally are just two novellas the first Mm -hmm. is called franny and the second is called zoe yeah um and they they more obviously function together as a novel Um, okay you could read them separately but they work way better together as a whole novel yeah two parts of a novel kind of right um but at the same time uh this these these work like you say in in sort of more subtle ways they uh they these two pieces work together and and that's you know um, that that Taoist parable right at the beginning of Raised High the Roof Beams Carpenters, um, it 
could function as an introduction to Seymour an introduction. You could, it you really, could chop it out really and could. drop it there. Cause, especially because he says, you know, um, since the bridegroom's permanent retirement from the scene, scene I mm-hmm. haven't been able to think of anybody who might care to send out to look for horses in his stead. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's literally what the entire rest of this book is about, is yes. Buddy Glass essentially essentially eulogizing his brother. Yes, uh, which, which I, I, I thought of this. Um, as I was going back, I finished the book and then I tried to think, uh, well, I tried to think about them distinctly, mm-hmm. uh, individually, and I sure. couldn't. Right. I could not divorce the two. Yeah. Um, and part of that is just because of Buddy's internal monologuing in Raise High the Roof Beam, um, that right. turns into this, um, uh, train of thought, um, For Seymour. For Seymour. Yeah, yeah. That just goes on. Um. It's almost as if, like, to describe it figuratively... As if Salinger had made a slip of the pen, um, and like <laughs> if this clerical error became conscious of being such, and then spawned an entire another section of the book that is like, yeah, way longer than the original section. Yeah, almost like that. Is that almost like that happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and almost like he couldn't help but lie about the figure that he was talking about. This really this, is he a liar? This, is he a liar? I don't know. I think I he might is he? be. Yeah. Okay, and that yeah. that does lead into. My my uh, chief thought on this read through of this book, and I and I you know I submit to you, I do not reread books often mm-hmm. because there are so many freaking books to get through. Like right. there's way more than I will no ever time be able to, to read go and read another one in a lifetime. To read the same yeah, one again. To read the same one. Yeah. So there are there are a solid maybe dozen books I can think of off the top of my head that I've read twice. Sure. Uh, and those are books that have made a huge impact on me. Right. Um, and that's how it has to be. Right. <laughs> if you're going to reread, it's going to be a good one. Exactly. Raise high the roof beams, carpenters, Franny and Zoe, and to a slightly lesser extent, nine stories I've read literally 10 to 12 times nine stories a little bit less but but these other two probably a dozen times i've read these books sure um for a while i was rereading them annually i i fell out of that habit but uh yeah so um you know and and they are they're like these you know they're all very slender books and they're just Mm -hmm. gem-like to me like every time i reread them i i see it something else catches the light yeah um and well and they're precious too they they just they convey something very precious they they seem to tell you that they're important just intrinsically but without like forcing it on you yes in fact they're almost and this this may be an element of that vampirism that you keep talking about (laughs) Um, <laughs> that, uh, you, you, like, they, they almost are, like, humble about it. They're, they're almost, uh, uh, you know, the, the literary equivalent of a guy who, like, stands in the corner and consciously tries to get you not to talk to him. Yes. You know, and, and, and that makes them all the more intriguing. But the thing that caught my eye this time around that I've noticed a little bit in the past, I almost notice it more in Franny and Zoe um has to do with something that i think a lot of people don't either don't pick up on or don't want to talk about in these books for whatever for one reason or another and that's like the flip side of this whole taoist eastern mystical thing sure um because salinger you know is more so than i'd say many authors um an author that people read biographically they try to read his books through the lens of his life rather than Mm -hmm. the other way around that's interesting Um, too and and sorry a lot of it is is about uh 
that Eastern stuff. And this mm-hmm. came at a time when the U.S. was becoming very interested in Eastern religions. And oh, sure. to some extent, Salinger consciously or unconsciously capitalized on that and, you know, hit hit sort of a nerve, excuse me, um, of, of what was going on at the time. But, and, and so that's, that's what a lot of people bring out is this idea. Oh, and, you know, oh, uh, there's so much Eastern mysticism here. There's a lot of Hinduism. There's Taoism. Um, you know, there, and then of course Salinger like compounded that by retreating into the woods for sixty years and dying. You know, not having published a single thing. For... He died in twenty ten. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and the last story yeah. he published, I think, was in sixty five. I might be wrong about that. Um, it certainly wasn't any later than sixty five. So that's you know forty five years mm-hmm. um, that he was supposedly writing and not publishing. And that's a very like you know, mystic, mm-hmm. sort of Buddhist uh, renunciation type of thing. Sure. Well, um, that sort of writing to not, writing not to be published yeah. is taking all the competition out of the, yeah. the act of writing. And it, again, it's which a, is that Buddhist idea, you know, the competition doesn't matter in, right. in Buddhism. You want to avoid that. <laughs> right. And it's that idea of renunciation. You know, yeah. you don't want to seek fame. You don't want to seek mm-hmm. to best <clears throat> anyone. Um, and yeah, so it's really easy to go into that, you know, with Salinger and just say, this is him sort of, sort of, uh, renouncing, you know, following his own convictions, renouncing, you know, renouncing the, the quest to best other people. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you have all that. Uh, but then if you, if you go to page 144, um, and we're, we're smack in the heart of the Seymour and introduction section of this book. Um, a very delicate matter now, a trifle coarse to be sure, but delicate, very delicate. And then he launches into a multi-page long paragraph all about, this is a four, I didn't notice this before actually, but this is a four-page paragraph. And it's all about the vaudeville history of the Glass family and how everything that all of them did had some aspect of performance to it. Yeah. And that, you know, this, and, you know, and then the very, uh, um, now on 147, the start of the following paragraph. Nor finally, did R. Seymour himself live or die a whit less affected by his background, yes. his vaudeville background, than any of the rest of us? Um, if I'm not mistaken, too, that comes in the context, too, here. Oh, maybe I'm not going to find it. Um, about Seymour's poetry, which is some... Oh, there no, it does. Go. No, um, it's, it's a little bit sooner on page 124 into 125, where he well, says, it, not... One single thing in all his Seymour's poems reflected these realities, and that's of of Seymour's life. Right. So his poetry is somehow divorced from his background. Yeah. But there in 147, Seymour did not live a whit less affected by his background. Right. And so he's he can't escape the background, but somehow in his writing he does. Right. Um, and that's that's getting to um, I think the secret of the narrator of Buddy. Right. Um, though I, I will point out that right on 147 there, as soon as, you know, he talks about the background, mm-hmm. um, I've already mentioned that I, although I believe his poems couldn't be more personal or reveal him more completely, he goes through every one of them without spilling a single really autobiographical bean. Yes. So there's, and that's, so like these poems are a performance. Yes. Um, you know, and the, the poems are a performance and, you know, uh, he, Buddy talks 
earlier in the book, which I'm certainly not going to find um, at this point, but Buddy talks about, uh, uh, I have no idea what I was going to say. Performance. <laughs> um, Lying. Something about that. Uh, I have to see if I can get back to the bit that, um, oh, Buddy talks about Seymour himself as a poem. Oh, right? sure, sure, sure. Which, so if you, if you follow that line and, and this is, you know, perhaps one of the reasons that like the writing style, particularly in this book out of all of Salinger's books and particularly in Seymour on introduction out of all of his pieces of books why the writing style here appeals to me as you will be able to tell just from the sentence that I'm saying right now <laughs> is that he starts off to say something you have like a uh a, a, you know a, an m dash um digresses digresses gets to the other end of the m dash finishes that like you know that rhetorical structure you see it on a sentence level and you see it just within the piece itself um, where on 124 he starts talking about his poem, Seymour's poems, mm-hmm. um, digresses for 25 pages, come, manages to come back to it, you know, mm-hmm. um, which is that, that structure I think is part of like the gem-like quality that I talked about earlier Well, and, and that it keeps me like, okay, he said this at the start and then this at the end. So that's what the sentence is. But then all of this in the middle shades that, mm-hmm. you know, so if Seymour's poems are performative and Seymour himself is sort of this living poetry that buddy wants to claim for him like that means that all everything about seymour and his personality was performative was yes. a performance uh-huh um which if you trace the logic through that's that's uh you know someone very sincere doing a performance of someone being very sincere mm-hmm. um if if we're to believe everything that buddy says Right. Uh, and that's super interesting. Right. Um, and you started to say you I think s- this is what... I, I think this is the what secret is... secret of Buddy the narrator. Of Buddy the narrator. Yes. Um, so this is where... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into this really quick here because I think it's significant to this. But the names. Uh-huh. Significance of the names. Uh-huh. Um, Seymour is we one should... that's... I would that's... like to just have an aside here and say we should really just do a segment of the show that's just called names with michael names with michael where you just analyze the names every <laughs> sure, time sure because you're really good at it so well, thank anyway you. name 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 with michael Um, but okay, Seymour. Yes. Um, it's 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 actually made explicit in Perfect Day for Banana Fish, mm-hmm. uh, where he meets Sybil Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Notice the last mm-hmm. name Carpenter for Sybil, um, and raise high the roof beam Carpenters. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, that's a whole other thing. Maybe I'll talk about it. Maybe not. Uh, Seymour, where she Which we we do have in this story the question of whether the main character of a Perfect Day for Banana Fish is in fact Seymour or Buddy. Right. Anyway. Yes, and that's, okay. Anyway, uh, yeah, right, because Buddy <laughs> says he's writing himself, or the family thinks he's he's writing more of him into the stories he's writing about Seymour. Than, yeah. But that's, that, and that's the point. So Seymour um, is, and this little girl, Sybil Carpenter, is annoying the crap out of her mother by saying, did you see more glass? Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> turning Seymour uh, Glass into a sentence. Underlying His name. Idea. Yeah, Seymour Glass. Uh, so Seymour mm-hmm. sees more. Right. Um, 
And I think that's one of the keys to his character, that he does see more. And what he sees more of is people. Mm-hmm. He sees more into people. He sees essentially what makes them happy. And uh, in uh, Raise High the Roofbeam Carpenters, uh, what's keeping him from marrying Muriel uh, earlier on, uh, or sooner, is that he's too happy. Right. Uh, and, and why he always his... call, almost calls off the wedding. Yep, altogether. because he's too happy. He's too he happy. can't marry her being this happy. And when you finally read the segment of his journal, or when Buddy reads that segment of his journal, uh, it, it becomes clearer why that is keeping him from just marrying her. And it's because if he's so happy now, and he marries her in this state... What is their relationship going to be when all of a sudden he's less happy? Mm-hmm. Um, and so he wants to marry her when he's less happy so that essentially kind of to, to simplify it a whole lot, it, there's nowhere to go but up mm-hmm. uh, kind of. So but um, so he sees more into the souls of people, I think. In, sure. Or at least that's how Buddy is communicating him, that he sees more of people, what they want, what they need. And he he sees both their beauty and their ugliness, but he doesn't really judge it. He just loves. Yeah. And that's how Seymour acts. Sure. And we never see anything from Seymour's perspective mm-hmm. except in those journal entries. But even that is communicated through Buddy's reading of the journals. Right. Um, so, uh, again, this is connecting the author and the reader with the text in between them, which is how the dedication begins. Right. The reader is which... there and taking charge of the text for the author. But <laughs> Right. Though also, now that, and this just occurred to me, like, as you were saying this, um... It, it's inter the the name glass is interesting mm-hmm. it has all kinds of interesting things to it but um now what it's making me think of is just that that passage from um saint paul we see now through a glass darkly mm-hmm. which has that word c in there um and salinger you know he he certainly shows his eastern uh reading strongly but he is intimately familiar with scripture as well oh um yeah you know, and and that's that's again almost more clear to me and Franny and Zoe than it is okay. here. But but it's you you can just you just you know there there's lots of places you can you can see that. Um, so that makes me think of through a glass darkly, which is the translation that would have been prevalent at this time. Um, you know that everyone would sort of have quoted. So if you have that that in mind, you see more through a through a dark glass, right? And it almost ma- you know it makes me think. Because the the great irony, of course, of Seymour's character is that he sees more of everyone except himself, mm-hmm. and the idea that you know ultimately, um, and you can sort of debate some of the the uh, threads leading into this, but ultimately, Seymour's marrying Muriel um, and that decision, and all of you know, and he's he's raving about how much he loves her in, in these journal entries. And all of that leads up to him putting a bullet through his head. Right. And it's it's this it's this like incredibly perceptive um sort of person who the only thing he can't see is himself. And, yeah. and what you know. Um and that's interesting it's interesting to me the the passage immediately after that that uh journal entry that you I was gonna point that wrote. out. Okay, that exact, go for it. It's go on page seventy six. Thank you. Um that uh is honestly the most interesting part of Raise High the Roof Beam Carpenters yeah. for me. Yeah. Um and I, I think it's intentionally that way. Mm-hmm. Uh but he finishes reading 
Seymour's journal, or mm-hmm. segments of Seymour's journal anyway, and it ends with a passage where Seymour is writing, and Seymour writes, I'm a kind of paranoiac in reverse. <laughs> I suspect people of plotting to make me happy. Right. Uh, which, that, that whole motif of happiness throughout both of these books is yeah. very interesting. Yeah. And so, then you've got uh, a, an, an augmented paragraph break uh, to, to mark that we're done reading the journal, and then we're back to Buddy's narration. And right. Buddy writes in this narration... I remember closing the diary, actually slamming it shut after the word happy. I then sat for several minutes with the diary under one arm until I became conscious of a certain discomfort from having sat too long on the side of the bathtub, because he's reading this in private in the bathroom. When I stood up, I found I was perspiring more profusely than I had all day, as though I had just got out of a hot tub rather than just been sitting on the side of one. Uh, anyway, um, so he goes on, there, there are words like vicious coming up here, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, it's... Well, and even, even if you just... Excessively hard and... Right. Even if you just, just look at that very next sentence after you, you stopped re- quoting fully, I went over to the laundry hamper, raised the lid, and with an almost oh. vicious wrist movement, literally threw Seymour's diary into some sheets and pillowcases that were on the bottom of the hamper. Um, yes. so, uh... And then, and then at the end of the paragraph, um, after he sat back on the tub for a little while and sort of reflected, closes the door excessively hard after him, as though sheer force might lock up the place forever after. Yes, um, he wants to destroy this journal. Right. He's so angry. Right. And I, before we get into further analysis, I just want to pause and maybe in the spirit of the dedication, just appreciate the the like craft going on here. Oh, man. Um, because a lot of writers simply would have said, this shit made me angry. Yeah. You know, this this pissed me off. He never says angry. He never says <laughs> angry. He never says mad. He never says anything like that. No. You could read this entire paragraph and miss how mad he is. You could. Um, until, if you were stupid. If you were stupid, yes. <laughs> um, until you just sit back and like envision the body language that's mm-hmm. happening and if you if you do that which is like the point of fiction you realize these are all like motions that you make when you're mad right um, and part of that too you know the point about him perspiring profusely yeah uh well he's he's just gone through a super hot day right and it's so hot and he's been talking about people sweating this whole right. time and now he's perspiring more profusely than he had all day right. and this is after he had turned on the air conditioning in the apartment right and now he's really really sweating right so that itself just in connection with all of this getting all the heat built up and you can feel that and now there's this heat from his anger right and why the crap is he angry right that's the question because in in everything from seymour's journal you would think oh this makes a lot of sense because this whole time the matron of honor has been complaining about seymour and that's what's been making buddy mad is like i need to defend seymour she's being mean to him and that's the whole note Starting even with the introduction of, you know, I, there's, I, ever since the, uh, you know, the groove left the scene, I, I haven't been able to think of someone I'd rather send out after horses. Mm-hmm. Um, for, even from that very beginning note, and yeah, through this, this whole like, uh, you know, familial defense instinct. Yep. Um, this, this it's all literally been... raising high of the roof beams right. for this heroic figure. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, all been uh pro seymour let us say absolutely yeah we we're we're set up to love seymour right because buddy uh, the narrator loves seymour right 
and now he's mad at him. Right. And that's the question. Why? Why is he mad at him? Right. And I think it's connected with Buddy's name. Okay. Buddy. Mm-hmm. Um, and Buddy is a friend. Buddy is a sidekick. Buddy is right. someone adjacent to the hero. Right. Uh, and uh, it, it's also unclear whether Buddy is actually his name or not. Mm-hmm. Um, because... I think he... Doesn't he explicitly say it's a nickname? Yes. Or does he all but say it's a nickname? He all but says it's okay. a nickname. I don't think he actually explicitly states that it is, but it's it's at least heavily implied that that was his stage name sure. when they did this oh, that's It's right. a Wise that's Child right. yeah, radio yeah, yeah. program. Um but yeah, so uh, but anyway, Buddy being someone adjacent to uh I think his anger stems from jealousy. Hmm. Uh I think that Buddy is the antithesis of this sort of Eastern religious sort of thing where he is all about competition but trying really hard not to be. Interesting. And seeing how perfect Seymour is, and and not exactly perfect, but how perfectly Seymour can see people. Well, and there's there's very much just a hero worship thread of buddy's entire relationship to Seymour, mm-hmm. and it is it that's the kind of thing that just psychologically very quickly turns into jealousy right and i think what what it is is seymour can see more of everybody right. except himself right buddy can see seymour mm-hmm. i think that's that's what's what sparks the anger here that's interesting um and i'm gonna throw a wrinkle into this and okay. i don't know i don't know that it's i don't know what it is uh, to be honest, um, other than the only like thought along the lines that I have managed to come up with myself, um, and maybe I didn't even come up with it, maybe I read it somewhere, I don't know. Buddy sounds an awful lot like Buddha. Mm, sure. Like, in fact, if you had someone named Buddha and you didn't have the religious connotations, Buddy would be a natural uh, nickname for yeah, him. Yeah, sure. Right. Um, and part of this comes out of out of uh, Franny and Zoe, um, because uh, Franny and Zoe s- somewhat climaxes in as much as any Salinger novel like has a has a traditional climax in um, Zoe, who is the older brother, sort of giving Franny some some life advice. And Franny has been having this sort of like nervous breakdown, like she's you know. 20 years old and a college student and suddenly questioning everything about her life and about her choices and um is is just you know has been sitting on the couch eating cheeseburgers for a week um <laughs> this is literally the the description in, in that and and so um sort of the the climax of the book is is zoe sort of talking her out of it but um if you read his his i don't even remember 25 page speech 50 page speech in that book um he calls her buddy all the time Mm. well you know let's just let's just have some perspective here buddy um stuff like that which obviously you know correlates to buddy glass but also um and that book is probably more heavily both eastern religiously influenced and uh Mm -hmm. biblically influenced um uh at least more obviously so than than any of the other books uh but it's pretty clear that there's like this Buddha thing going on because in Buddhism you have this idea of seeing the Buddha in, in everyone. Sure. Um, and the idea that 
you know, that sort of, if, if that's what you need to be able to love everyone and to, to, you know, treat them lovingly, like that's what you do. You see the Buddha in them. Um, and this has been adapted into like Christian, um, you know, sort of Christian mystic tradition where you see Christ in, in everyone. Um, so, uh, which is a, a statement that's made here. See Christ, all the rest is taught. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> which is, it is a statement I believe quoted from, a. Uh, Swami Vivekananda, yes. who is was in in the early twentieth century, I believe, was um a, sort of a major Hindu Swami who was influential on a lot of American writers. Mm-hmm. Um, his his I've read his interpretations of Thoreau, which are fascinating and maddening in equal measure. Um, anyway, yeah. So so yeah, you have that idea too. So it's an interesting tension, I guess, is what I'm saying, between the idea that Buddy is here like the most competitive and the least Buddhist, and yet the whole spirit of that name is is very much a, a sort of pacifist right. seeing seeing you know the the that which you love in everyone else, right? Which is, I think. Um part of the the whole thing you've got the the theme in uh in in raise high the roof beam of the internal and the external the mm-hmm. with with that that horse analyzer mm-hmm. in the taoist story uh that um the, the conclusion of that uh when the emperor complains about this new guy appointed by the old um the old horse seeker um and what did he have a title? Oh, the the one who looks for horses. Right. Uh, and and he said, "I've got a, a fine, great, big black stallion for you, or something." And it turns out right. to be like a brown mare or something, and completely different. Uh, and the the old one uh, just is in shock and says, uh, "In making sure of the essential, he forgets the homely details. Intent mm. on the inward qualities, he loses sight of the external." And so that's part of that buddy in the external Mm. would be the perfect buddha figure but internally he's not it's putting on that persona and the 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 beginning of seymour and introduction the the paragraph attributed to kafka the actors Mm. um uh, that are that are presented there and talking about the actors he finds out no i'm lying about them and i don't know can we talk about that I, I didn't actually look into this at all. Are those two paragraphs, one's attributed to Kafka, the other's to Kierkegaard, are they actually um, from them? I don't know. Okay. I have read this book 12 times and not bothered to find out. Sure. I, it um, doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> I My instinct would be that they are actual yeah. quotes. Like, that seems more the Salinger style. It seems but, more likely that they are. Yeah, but I I would be I okay if sure. they weren't. Right. But ultimately, it doesn't matter whether or not they are. Um, right. Which is why I didn't bother to look them up. <laughs> I do I do admit that almost every time, including this one, when I've reread this book, I forget that those are quotes. And I okay. think that those are just how he opened the book. Sure. Or opened the, the novella, anyway. Um so and and then and then we get like you know halfway through or whatever when he finally gets around to attributing you know his his at least supposed source material and I have to go back and reread the whole first part that's the only part that I read anyway um, right in light of knowing that right right so there is that 
uh, yeah. I don't know. Do you do you have any more uh, names that you want to talk about? Or? Those are those are the main ones those that I wanted to talk about. I mean, we could talk about Sybil Carpenter getting into the the larger canon of the Glass family right. in Salinger's writings, but um, I mean, but Carpenter just connecting with give the gentle listener a chance to read nine stories. I know. We okay. only gave them long enough to read this book. All right, let's give them a chance. All right, take okay. a break. Pause, Pause your tape player. The podcast. Pause it. <sighs> Go read nine stories, especially the first one, Perfect Day for Banana Fish. The rest are good, too. And then come back. All right. Three, two, one. Welcome back. Thank you for reading those. And now we're going to keep talking. You sounded increasingly less sincere that entire time, <laughs> especially during the interval during which the reader was reading. <laughs> I was non-verbally insincere. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Good. Good. I'm proud of myself that I have ascended to that great level there. But no, okay. So Sybil Carpenter, the 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 little girl in Perfect Day for Banana Fish. Yes. It's a really short story in that yeah. nine stories. It I, it might be the shortest one, probably. Um, I'm not positive without. Going all the way across the room and looking at your copy, but, but right, it's over there. Yeah, I, I see but it. her whole character—the li- listener sees it. It's too. yep. See, right over there. Yep, right underneath the first four volumes of Luther's works. Yep, very good. Um, <laughs> where, it, where it belongs. Where it belongs. <laughs> as as the pedestal of Luther's works. <laughs> no, okay. Uh, no, Sybil Carpenter serves in her entire purpose to annoy her mother. And to be an adorable little girl. Who's, is she five? Is that uh, what I remember? Sounds right. Um, I didn't actually reread this for this show. I did. Because I wasn't I expecting you to spring this on me. Well, even though go. I should have. And I should have reread it. You should have anyway. read it during that pause. That we I should have. You're right. Yeah, you should have pressed pause. I was in the actually podcast. just picking wax out of my ear instead. Oh, okay. So. That's, you know, that's, that's a valid use of your time. Right, right. Anyway. So she just serves to be adorable. Um, <laughs> in this book, in this story, and there's there's a, a tint of um, I forget the name because it's a character you never meet, but that Seymour talks about uh, of another character that Sybil is jealous of. Oh, uh, another little girl, right? another little girl yeah. uh, who got to sit on the piano bench with Seymour right. or something Which was, in this was hotel, and she's like, "How could you betray offensive. me?" Very offensive. Um, yeah, it was super offensive to this little girl named Sybil Carpenter. Um. But okay, so connecting that with Ray's, Ray's High the Roof Beam Carpenters, right. which you could read as the last name of Sybil Carpenter, uh, Ray's High the Roof Beam, Sybil Carpenter. Um, How many more times are you going to say all those words? Carpenter. I'm going to say it as many times as will convince you that I am superior. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to take a lot more time. Baby. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, Sybil therefore serves in that story... To build up Seymour. She serves to introduce Seymour and Mm. to present him as this heroic character because he shines as this beautiful character when he's interacting with Sybil. And as soon as she is out of the scene, then he reacts horribly to people. Hmm. He meets a woman in the elevator and just insults her. I forget exactly the circumstances, Hmm. but he's horrible to her 
and he goes up to his room. Muriel, his wife, is sleeping on the bed after she'd had a, an exhausting conversation with her mother on the phone, which was at the beginning of that book, uh, which, again, that or the, uh, that story, that's some brilliant craft at the beginning of yeah, that story. You absolutely. get the whole story in this phone conversation without any deliberate, direct exposition. exposition. Because... It's a high-context communication. Right. Possibly Super one, high of, one of the highest contexts being that these are this is mother and daughter, and they are particularly close mother and daughter. Really close mother and yeah. daughter. And the mother hates the husband. Yeah. The newlywed husband. and But you get all and that. And you get all of it, even though you shouldn't be able to get all You shouldn't be. Yeah. We're talking about something other than these books. Anyway, then he shoots himself. <laughs> Out of nowhere. <laughs> right. Right. Um... um so, but but that comes after his interaction with Sybil Carpenter, right? Uh, and so you take that whole idea that with her, with Sybil Carpenter, he's a beautiful person, right? Outside of his interaction with Sybil Carpenter, in that story, he's ugly, right? Uh, in in how Muriel's mother talks about him, in how he interacts with the woman on the elevator, and how right. he shoots himself at the end. He's <laughs> ugly the entire time, except when he's interacting Which even, with Sybil Carpenter. Even shooting himself at the end, um, I do remember reading, and this was a scholarly article of some kind that I read, that uh, the the suicide at the beginning of Nine Stories, and there's a suicide at the end of Nine Stories, and they're both... Uh, sort of staged in such a way as to horrify some female in it sure um you know because obviously seymour shooting himself right next to his sleeping wife right like, that's gonna wake her up and she's gonna see him immediately yeah. dead and and yeah. once again and, and wake up presumably like by the gunshot right uh which once again like that aspect and it becomes very dark here but that aspect of performance is there yeah that this is nothing without an audience um right and this is tailored to a very specific audience right um now it's interesting just one thing while we're talking about perfect day for banana fish one wrinkle that i i, I don't think it, it uh contradicts your interpretation at all but it's it's just another wrinkle is if you pay attention to the colors of the bathing suits in that story it becomes very interesting you get yellow and blue especially yellow and blue and um the little girl whose name I just forgot. Sybil Carpenter. Said it less than a minute ago. <laughs> she has a yellow bathing suit, which yes. she is very taken with. And she's talking to Seymour about it. And Seymour says, you know, there's nothing like a blue bathing suit. Mm -hmm. and, and Sybil says, it's, it's yellow. Right. You know, and on the surface, um, that's just being cute with this little five year old. Right. And, yeah. But then several paragraphs later, I want to say it is, uh, it's mentioned in, in sort of a, a, slightly different context that seymour's bathing suit is is blue yes so like clearly even with sybil there there's something that's going on right you know that's that's and uh, that that leads into my next point with sybil carpenter right that you know the the the, the message where, where the title of the book raise high the roof beam carpenters comes is a message that boo boo writes on the mirror boo boo the sister of these mm -hmm. two uh, writes on the mirror of this apartment that she's been living in that is Buddy's apartment. Um, but she's not there because she's been deported. Not deported, but um, she's been sent out in, in the army. Uh, what's that called? Deployed. Deployed, thank you. That's, and it that's was a similar word. And it was a dep word. Yeah, right. Um, anyway, she's written this message <laughs> on the mirror uh, in soap. 
Uh, raise high the roof beam carpenters like Ares comes the bridegroom taller far than a tall man love Irving Sappho formerly under contract to Elysium Studios Limited (laughs) 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 uh, so the the point of raise high the roof beam carpenters it's referring to Seymour raise these roof beams high because he is a tall heroic god of a man right Uh, and that is what Sybil does for him she raises him up like a god of a man. Right. And he can't handle it. Mm-hmm. And it's not directly correlative. I think he plotted to kill himself far before that uh, just because of his whole happiness, that happiness motif. Right. That he can't handle being too happy because that means that somebody else is less happy than he is. Hmm. Uh, and it's a sort of selfless happiness, I think. Or I think that is how Buddy sees Seymour. I think that's what Buddy thinks Seymour is. Um, In all of this whole context, because in Seymour and Introduction, Buddy makes the point, as you mentioned earlier, that the family, the Glass family, thinks that Buddy wrote more of himself into Seymour in A Perfect Day for Banana Fish than of Seymour. Right. And I think what that means is that Buddy wrote what he idealized Seymour was. Sure. That being the perfect selfless. Mm. In the sense of someone who cannot handle being happier than someone else. If he knows someone else is less happy than he is, he can't handle it. Sure. And so with his interaction with Sybil Glass, she or Sybil Sybil Carpenter, she is building him up, right. turning him into this this demigod persona. Uh, by just because he's interacting with her and being a beautiful person right. and being super happy with her, um, it's it's not the straw that breaks the camel's back, but it's a part of this whole uh, that he is he is accommodated as a demigod and he can't he can't deal with that huh. uh, as Buddy sees him. Sure, and that is where Buddy's whole persona of the competitive uh, sort comes in sure um interesting my thoughts <laughs> anyway well we are drawing on towards uh the end of this hour yes let's um, stop here do we want to punish me now let's punish you now or wait until we get home um <laughs> you'd like that wouldn't you i i, I would uh, like but you know what one, we're gonna punish frankly. you with an audience I would like either one, but don't tell my wife. Right. Uh, so this being a Salinger episode, right. we can't go without... Oh, no. Screw you. <laughs> Screw you. Catcher in the Rye. Please open to the first page of Catcher in the Rye. I will, but only because I have to. Yes. Let the gentle listener be advised. I love Franny and Zoe. I love Raise High the Roof Beams, Carpenters, and Seymour in Introduction. I love Nine Stories. Catcher in the Rye is a flaming pile of dog poop <laughs> that even Salinger said should never have been written. All right, what's my punishment? All right, your punishment. How's your whistling? Bad. Okay, great. I love it. Like, remember how my singing was? <laughs> my whistling is like if my singing were good. <laughs> okay. That would be bad. Got it. Um, all right, so what I want you to do is read just the first sentence. The first sentence of The Catcher in the Rye However, anytime you come across a word that is three letters long or shorter, I want you to whistle instead of read the word. So, any three-letter word 
or shorter. Just like word. a whistle blast. Just, just a like whistle a blast. One note. Okay. Yep. Also, it's interesting that you picked a punishment that involves reading the opening of Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> and I will only tell you more if we get to punish you. Hooray. Really want to hear about... First thing you'll probably want... No. Where... I don't know if the gentle listener can hear, but I am attempting to whistle. <laughs> we'll augment it in post. Born. You know what? You know what a bad filmmaker says? <laughs> we'll fix it in post. <laughs> what lousy childhood like parents were occupied before they had no. That David Copperfield kind crap feel like going into want no truth. <laughs> Thank you very much. Welcome. <laughs> that was delightful. I would like the gentle listener to note that I just threw Michael's copy of Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> he did. He did. He threw it. Um. All right. Uh, I want to take uh, the the chance while we're. Do you want to do that now, or do you want to wait till the next episode? Uh, you know what? Let's wait. Let's wait on it. Just in case that has any legs. Just, just in case we are being very mysterious, gentle listener. Yeah. And in two weeks, you will uh, discover discover the end to this. Discover mystery. just what we are being mysterious about. Yes, perhaps in two weeks, maybe you'll discover the other thing I was being mysterious about. If Michael slips, if. If being the key word yes. here. Yes, if. indeed. So thank you for joining us, gentle listener, for this episode, episode six of Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. Um, as you listen to this episode, if you check out our website or our Facebook page or our Twitter uh, on Facebook, we are uh, facebook.com slash room with scotch on Twitter at room with scotch. Or on the website tapestryradio.org. <laughs> what is the dog giving me? <laughs> the dog has been licking my thigh for the past several of Michael's sentences, and it just finally got to the point where it tickled too much. <laughs> good. That's a good girl. Yeah. Yes, you're so good. If the gentle listener has felt the table beneath the recording equipment rocking, like if your tape recorder sort of jostled on its own it's because of the for dog. some reason, it was because of the dog. She has been bumping the table. A few times in the last few minutes. Yes, she's she's a a very good puppy. Okay, we don't need more of this on tape to blackmail us with. That's true. Okay, anyway, uh, tapestryradio.org slash Michael dash and... You know what, just go there. Click on the shows at the top and click on Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch for short. M-A-E-I-A-R-W-S or Meowz. Go to go to Meowz uh, and find out just, what book we're reading next month. Anybody we'll who find was out in an hour. anybody who was going to uh, go there has just now become too confused to ever bother. <laughs> just lost us whatever listeners we had. But acronyms are so cool, and so I'm trying to come up with a good acronym for our show. Meowz. 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 Yeah, that's good. That's an excellent one. Meowz. Yes. So check that out. Uh, 
So it, feel free also to read along with that book that you find out that we're reading. Also, you can wait two weeks and find out what we're reading, but then you'll only have two weeks to read it before our next episode. But check on the website. You'll see what we're reading next month. Read along with us. And if you'd like to join the discussion, visit us at tapestryradio.org or on our Facebook page or on Twitter uh, and leave your feedback. If you go to the uh, website, go to the contact section and uh, write us some feedback there with Scotch Talk in the subject line. That's the best way to know uh, what you're talking about when you uh, send that combat <clears throat> comment back to us. Uh, also, if you like what we do here each month or bi-weekly, Review us on iTunes, please. Yes, review us on iTunes, share us on Facebook, share us on Twitter. Retweet. Retweet. Comments. Uh, share on Facebook. Share. Like, literally just any word of mouth like that that we get. That's pretty much our only means of, like, getting Tells out your there friends. at this point. So, Like we say, yeah. we're in it for the money, so get us some money. Yeah. Speaking of which. Speaking of which. Shout out to our first donor. Cody Harden. Cody Harden, who we love. Thank you so much, platinum um, fan Cody Harden. Yes, which he just went ahead and donated because we happen to have a donate tab on, on the right, website. Right, it's there on the website, um, and he's which, like, hey, I'll click on this. Yeah. Let's see what happens. I'm pretty sure it was an accident. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was, but we're A, keeping the money, and B, because we're keeping the money, we're going to get you a tapestry radio swag bag of some kind you get a swag bag um we don't and know what shout that... outs across the board yeah literally every show we're just gonna shout out to you also we don't know what the the uh thing will be yet hopefully by the time this airs maybe we'll have sent it off to you right so, either um... it will be in the mail or in your hands by the time you hear this assuming hopefully. you do hear this Right. We don't know. Maybe you just donated and don't listen, which would right. be awesome, too. That's just, also a possibility. Like, Maybe you is... just Googled something. I don't know. Maybe you Googled our names and saw it. I don't think What's this tab do? Okay. And so, all right. Uh, so join I'm, us in two weeks for two part weeks. two of our discussion of Raise High the Roof Beams Carpenters and see more in introduction. And we'll keep talking about it and keep reading. By J.D. Salinger. J.D. Salinger. Thank you very much. The and end. now you're listening to some cool electronic jazz.
Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener, obviated objects of oblivion obambulating about, offered unto you in the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org, from our fancy to yours. Thank you.